The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You don't have an effective system of control on the trade of surveillance technology. And you really, we're still struggling to get state agreement on that. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast for May 11th, 2023. The term spyware refers to software that's designed to infiltrate, monitor, and extract sensitive information from a user's device without their knowledge or consent. Perhaps the most infamous example of the harm that spyware can do is the 2018 killing of Saudi dissident journalist Jamal Khashoggi by Saudi government operatives, who used spyware implanted on Khashoggi's phone to track him before luring him to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul, where he was murdered. But spyware use is not just limited to repressive autocracies. It's frequently both developed and used by liberal democracies, a practice that has generated increasing concern over the past several years. For example, the spyware on Khashoggi's phone, Pegasus, was developed by NSO Group, a prominent Israeli cyber intelligence firm. To talk about spyware and its potential regulation under international law, I spoke with one of my colleagues, Fanula Niolan. Fanula is a Regents Professor and the Robina Chair in Law, Public Policy, and Society at the University of Minnesota Law School, where she also directs our Human Rights Center. But most importantly for this conversation, Fanula is also the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms While Countering Terrorism. It's a position she's held since 2017. As part of that role, she recently published a report on the global regulation of the counterterrorism spyware technology trade. I spoke with Fanula about her findings and what, if anything, could be done to make spyware compliant with human rights. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 11. Fanula Neolan on regulating spyware. Fanula, thank you very much for joining. I'm really looking forward to talking about the spyware report that you just released. But before we get into that, can you just give some background on your role? What does it mean to be, and this is a this is a, a quite a mouthful of a title, so I'm going to try to say it in one breath. What does it mean to be the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms While Countering Terrorism? It's a mouthful. So yes, I'd be happy. I'm happy to be here, of course, and also really happy to say what that mouthful means. So it's a role, it's a political appointment by a body called the Human Rights Council, which is a body of states whose role really um, entrusted under the council is to promote and protect human rights around the world. Um, 
there are a number of expert bodies that work out from that council. And one of them is called special procedures mechanisms. So these are experts, independent experts who are appointed because of their expertise in a particular area. And their role once they're appointed is to do three things. It's to write annual reports to the General Assembly and the Human Rights Council on issues of their choice or pleasing, things that are interesting or relevant to the regulation of global counterterrorism, where either there's a gap in the law or an issue of concern or a recommend set of recommendations to states. It's to do country visits at the invitation of a government. So you get to go and do an, a, what would be a 360 assessment of a government's counterterrorism practice um, and then you report that back um, to the Human Rights Council. And the third is that special rapporteurs engage in individual communications. So the office in Geneva, which is where the, these come to us, individuals who believe they've been the subject of a human rights violation in any kind of counterterrorism measure. Could be a drone strike, could be the use of a sanctions measure, could be a listing measure, could be the use of countering terrorism finance proceedings, detention on the basis of counterterrorism charges. Anyone from anywhere in the world can make a, a complaint to the system and ask for the special rapporteur, that's me, but it's really my team, um, to address that complaint with their government. And when it comes to reports like this, can you just describe what the what the role of these are? And, and also maybe speak a little bit about sort of the role of, of these sorts of soft law instruments, if you think that's a fair characterization of them when it comes to both the UN and the activities of UN member states. Sure. So my formal reports every year to the General Assembly and to the Human Rights Council fall into, into a category that you might call soft law, but I, I think soft law is too strong a term to describe them. Meaning that, of course, there are times when I may make suggestions or give advice to states or identify a fix to a legal problem that they may, they may then take up as either hard or soft law and it would have binding capacity for states. I see the role of the mandates reports more as a really, first of all, it's technical assistance and advice to states. It's really about saying in this kind of report, for example, on spyware, you have this very specific challenge or there is this problem with spyware and no one has yet really figured out a way other than saying, don't use it, how to manage it. And so this is a set of ideas, solutions, pathways for states to think about. So obviously there's a report, but then there's all of this unseen work that I and my team, but me politically, will do with member states, with the United States, with the European Union, but with other states, with the Organization of Islamic States, with the Grulak states in Latin America. We So there's a piece of political work that goes with this kind of report where you try to educate and sensitize states to the idea that there could be a solution or a fix for a problem that you've identified in state practice. So now let's turn to the report and let's first start by defining our terms, which I think is always always useful, especially in technology settings where things are happening very quickly and terms are often quite elastic. How do you define spyware? And can you just provide kind of at a high level um, the sorts of tools and their uses, let's say in the counterterrorism context, which of course is is your mandate, though obviously they're they're used more broadly than just that. Yeah, I mean, for the purposes of this report, we think of spyware as sophisticated surveillance technology, 
And in this context, it's the kind of surveillance technology that I'm talking about is that which has been designed for counterterrorism or national security purposes. I think one of the things we focus on in particular, as you know, this report identifies a set of private actors who are producing this kind of technology. And what I think about when I think about the kind of spyware or technology that I'm concerned about, it's technologies that allows the user to specify certain target data and metadata rather than just something that automatically monitors data and metadata. So it has a targeting component. That's one of the things that we're particularly focused on. This is technology that can automatically access data, generally on a person's phone, but also on, you know, I'm thinking primarily of phones. And when it does that, obviously, it has the capacity not just to access you, but like everything that you have contact with. So all of your, not just the targeted individuals, but the individuals that those individuals are in contact with. And of course, one of the things, the characteristics of this kind of um, sophisticated surveillance technology that particularly interests me is the way in which, first of all, that it's triggering doesn't require any act. I mean, it used to be like the bait and switch where you click something and then you get, but that's that's not the kind of technology we're talking about anymore. We're really talking about non-click technology. So you may not even be aware. There'll be nothing to suggest to you that you're the subject of surveillance. So so just, so just to clarify on that, so like it used to be just sort of kind of uh, concrete, it used to be that someone would text you a link and you'd have to click on the link. And now someone just texts you and you didn't even realize that the process of texting you has installed some piece of malware on your device. Uh, exactly. or, or even maybe they didn't even text you. It's, it's completely, un, completely opaque to you. It's completely opaque, right? That the sophistication of its implantation doesn't require any act or action by the person who's the target. So that's the kind of technology that I'm particularly concerned with. I think the other characteristics of this kind of technology is that some of these technologies have really definable harmful uses, meaning that they have kill switches, we'll call them, that's the term, but that they can erase any evidence of there ever having been on your system at all, right? So that there's a way in which it's not just the fact that it's implanted, but it can be removed in a way that never allows you to figure out whether it's been there or not. So traceability of the of the technology is a problem. And then, of course, the other big thing about this kind of sophisticated um, surveillance technology is that it can alter what's on your device without you knowing about it. So that means that you have, let's say you're a lawyer and you have documents on your on your device that that's evidence, right? It can actually, this kind of sophisticated technology has the capacity to access and alter documents without your the, the target even realizing that they've been altered. So that's the kind of the, the elements of this kind of technology from a human rights perspective that's deeply concerning to me and that sort of prompts this engagement with this particular kind of, yeah, of surveillance technology that is increasingly ubiquitous, that's been really, really difficult to regulate states and even at national states are struggling to figure out and some of them actually don't want to. Some do and some don't. Struggling to figure out what to do with this technology. 
Yeah. So I, my follow-up question I get is, is partly definitional and, and I think partly historical, which is to what extent is there overlap between spyware and what we might call bulk surveillance, right? So it used to be that the stuff we were talking about was the 702 program, for example, and, you know, upstream collection and tapping the, you know, transatlantic cables and, and all that sort of stuff. Obviously, much of it was done for counterterrorism purposes. Uh, and the concern there was sort of the, the bulk nature of it. And it tended not to be done on people's devices. Now, it seems like with spyware, people are still concerned about bulk collection, obviously. But now it seems like the concern has moved to end user devices themselves. Is, is that a fair sort of characterization of where the, the, the focus of concern has shifted to? And, and if so, why, why has that happened? Is it just a technological transition or a strategic transition? Why are we talking about this now when 10 years ago we were talking about PRISM and stuff like that? <laughs> yeah. So I think there's a bundle of questions there. I, like you, uh, I see these two things coexisting in tandem. Um, bulk data collection hasn't gone away. The concerns that I have as Special Rapporteur about the oversight of bulk data collection, the privacy uh, implications, the increased concerns about the kinds of profiling and individuation that can happen from bulk data. None of those have gone away, right? Those are still prescient. They're still relevant. But it is true that we have seen a shift of concern. It's hard to figure out. Partly, I think, the shift of concern is that there's just more revelation, right? We're just, we're seeing more, whether it's a, a princess who's in the course of divorce proceeding in London, who has her phone, you know, surveyed, and, and there's a revelation about the scope of intrusion, not just on her life, but on everyone else's life. That's not a counterterrorism purpose, clearly, but it speaks to some kind of a slippage out of a kind of a security space into just, uh, misuse in a broader sense that concerns people. I think the Jamal Khashoggi case just fundamentally changed the discussion about this because there, the kind of link between the use of the surveillance technology and an absolute harm, which was the chopping up of an individual into multiple pieces in a in a consulate space in, in Turkey, and just to note his body's never been recovered, and I think there's some way in which these kind of very prominent cases have shifted at least public perception. But it's also clear, frankly, as my report documents, that there's just more use of this end user and there's more transfer of technology happening. And I think I think we have to reckon with these two things in terms of how they exist together right now. So you mentioned the um, famous and tragic case of Jamal Khashoggi. Could you just go into that a bit more and talk about the role that spyware played to the extent that we understand in that case, uh, sort of as a lens for the, the sorts of sort of really serious abuses that um, have occurred and, and that we've seen come to light over the last few years. Yeah. And I think one of the ways to think about this is just, uh, is almost like a historical or like how have, how has, you know, states always have historically engaged in trying to gather information through intelligence and other sources. None of that is, is new per se, but it's sort of understanding the quantum difference that this form of surveillance technology engages and its implications once it's targeted at a particular person. And we'll just use the phone as the example, because historically we could think of like wiretapping people listening into you on your phone, trying to figure out what you're up to, who your associates are. And we have, of course, we have formal legal means by which state, for example, in the United States and elsewhere on, in which that kind of authorization can be sought. 
But the spyware we're talking about really takes over control of your phone. And it has the capacity to, for example, make calls to people, to send messages, can download content. It has a kind of an autonomous life in your device. And it is that kind of technological capacity, that explosion of capacity, uh, and the scale of intrusion that it allows typically means that actually the scope of what it can do, not just in terms of intrusion in privacy, right? So that somebody, it's not just about someone listening to you, but both the use that's made of the information about you, the use of the information about others to whom you are connected, but also the capacity to manipulate information. If you think about Jamal Khashoggi, part of what we know is that in fact it was it was about having a, a deep awareness of his movements, where he was going, having that information go to a third party, having the third party, which was a state, as we know, act upon that information in a particular site and kill him. And it was that linkage between information and geography and the presence of Jamal Khashoggi that led uh, to his death. I think the other thing that's really worth stressing is that maybe historically, like if you think about it, for me at least, spycraft and spyware tended to be the exclusive domain of governments, right? Of government agencies, of intelligence services, of kind of technical experts in-house in government. But what we're seeing and what I think it means, for example, to have private entities, and I list a whole bunch of them in paragraph 17 of my report. I mean, they include companies like NSO, and they, they include Quadream, they include UK-based Gamma International Limited, there's German companies, there's French companies, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of US firms in there too. What's different is that you have private sector cybersecurity firms responsible for these tools and capacities in a way that's both outside state control with no obvious regulatory or accountability mechanism. So if we had some way to control or even still have some ways to control the ways in which states deal with this information, we certainly have no functional legal frameworks, in my view, that address the ways in which private actors have access to and can use or transfer this information. So lots, lots to lots to unpack there, and I just want to just provide just a little bit of background on on the Khashoggi murder um, for those who may be less familiar with this. So this was a, a very well known um, Saudi dissident and journalist. I think he worked for the Washington Post here, um, and and he was killed in the uh, Saudi embassy in uh, Istanbul uh, when he went. To, I think he was trying to get a, a visa or something related to a, to a marriage. His his identification so he could marry. It yeah, was legal documentation um, in order to marry his then fiance. Yeah, just just to make the story even grimmer. And he went into the consulate and he never came out of the consulate yeah. uh, or the, the embassy, um, as it were. Um, and and so the the idea here is that part of the the reason that the Saudi government and it's a little complicated, obviously, as to who exactly was uh, behind it. There are lots of uh, denials from uh, the Saudi government, which we don't need to get into here. Part of the reason they were able to conduct this assassination, I think is fair to say, is because they had this 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 spyware on his phone. And so they just knew where he was and where he was going and, and all of that. And so that's kind of the most concrete example, I think, right, of, of the harms that you can get from, um, from spyware. Yeah. 
we do have, even though there's the, these kind of high profile cases and Jamal Khashoggi is probably the most sort of obvious of them. We are, you know, we also have really good information points that we see, you know, so that software in particular, for example, the Pegasus software being connected to the hacking of phones of leading politicians in Spain, including the defense minister of Spain, the president, Mr. Macron, has had his phone targeted. We know that dissidents, human rights activists, you know, people, journalists, people who just disagree with their governments in countries as diverse as Bahrain, Togo, the United States, that we have good evidence that this is happening on a wide scale. And maybe um, we had a parliamentary hearing at the European Parliament uh, last June, and that it, it was NSO's own data at that parliamentary hearing that told us that Pegasus is used by states to target up to 13,000 individuals a year globally. So this isn't, this isn't a, a micro problem. I would say it's a pretty macro problem that we're facing. From your analysis and understanding, this macro problem, is it still growing or or have we sort of hit saturation? In other words, I mean, it's already a big problem, but we're sort of on the adoption curve of this, are we? Or is it hard to know? And it's, you know, it's, it's enough that it's a big problem now, whether or not it's going to be an even bigger problem in a year, five years. I mean, you and I could be like, you know, looking at a crystal ball of spyware, say, you know, where does it go? Where is it going? I think we're, as we know, we've always said this in the in this adoption of so many of these tools, sort of, I would say, and in particular in the counterterrorism arena, where you start off with kind of adoption primarily based on security-based arguments and defense of the state and preventing crimes. And then we sort of see like expansion. And a really good example, comparative example of that is drones. I mean, we started off with drones and battlefields. And now, you know, North Dakota is the first state in the United States that's using drones to do, I don't know, policing work in North Dakota. And that's on the upswing too. So I think we're actually at the entry point to a lot of these discussions for a number of reasons. One is because we have a better sense of the scale of transfer from a number of countries. And I mean, you know, the range of countries in the report is long in Bahrain, Ethiopia, Uganda, Egypt, North Africa, Sudan. I mean, this is a very geographically diverse set of countries that are seeking these services. A lot of them are non-democracies. And I think as a democracy, we want to be the United States in particular. It's it's pretty okay when you think you can control the, the, the tool that you want to use. <laughs> Sometimes we have a high tolerance for new tools when we think we're the only ones who have them. But I think our tolerance gets much less sort of tolerant, for want of a better way of putting it, when actually we don't control and it runs at odds with some of the other kind of trend patterns we're seeing in the world. So I, I guess um, what really keeps me up at night is that in a world in which we're seeing rising authoritarianism, you know, closing civic space, a lot of backsliding on democracy, I think this security infrastructure is playing an enormously significant role in a number of countries in that regard but also that there are a number of countries who have an interest in using these tools to undermine democracy, rule of law, good governance, rights. And that's why I think we're at the cusp of use rather than we're kind of coming out the other side of use.
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So let's turn to the state of regulation of these tools, both at the national and such as it is at the international level. Uh, you know, how are these tools regulated? Um, and, and in particular, I'd love for you to talk about the role of export controls, um, which I understand is, yeah, yeah, no one I, uh, uh, for, for, <laughs> podcast is, is sadly an audio, audio medium. So you did not, uh, the, the listeners did not just see the shadow that went across, uh, uh, your, your face there. Um, as someone who spent a bunch of time doing export control when I was in the government, I know that it is not always the sexiest topic, but it, here it is, it has an outsized importance. Um, so love for you to talk about that if you could. Well, I mean, you know, one of the things that this report tries to do is really tries to work kind of meticulously through all of the places where there might be some control on the use of spyware or this kind of technology, but really finds that there isn't actually when we sort of. And so maybe to walk through them would be the way to start. One is let's just talk about businesses, you know, mainly as we've talked about sort of at the edges of, you've got a large set of business enterprises engaged in the production and sale of surveillance technology in multiple countries. And at least from an international law perspective, you know, who are the subjects of international law? This will sound like international law 101 for listeners, but like the subject of international law is states. We regulate states. We don't regulate. And we have some idea that maybe there are some subsidiary obligations that states have to regulate business enterprises, particularly those engagement, say, in high risk endeavors. But actually, there's no automatic regulation of businesses. And in fact, we know that there are very few countries that have specific statutory instruments that impose limitations on business enterprises in their development trade of these kinds of technologies. So we start with that, that the sort of framework that that regulates businesses by international law standards, it's a soft law framework. It's called the Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. Now, I have to say, it's a very old-fashioned international lawyer. When I hear the word guiding and I hear the word principles in the same sentence, I am not very often reassured that there's a lot of regulation going on. So, So we really have this sort of gap, at least in international law, that there's an obligation on states to regulate businesses who are in the the business of developing, tra- uh, using or transferring the surveillance technology. And, 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 and just to clarify, presumably, I mean, this is obviously not the first time the private uh, sector has been building tools that could cause human rights issues, right? I mean, we've had a giant military industrial complex. So I assume the idea that, look, if you are a country that has a ton of weapons manufacturers, there is a non-trivial obligation for you to make sure that, you know, those weapons aren't going everywhere 
you're looking at me skeptically, which makes me very nervous. I am not an international law scholar. I, it's, I would have just assumed that that existed. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, which would be a real bummer. I mean, certainly in the area of conventional weapons, nuclear weapons, of course, we have these kind of treaty agreements. The problem, of course, is we're seeing in that sphere, maybe a different day's conversation, is it turns out they don't work so well. And they certainly increasingly, we have big concerns about the transfer of those kinds of tech weapons to non-state armed groups, right? Why are we worried about that? We're worried about that because actually we, we are not entirely sure that all the governments who are supposed to be doing what you and I think they should be doing, Alan, actually have either the interest to do it or the will to do it, or actually that it's not precisely in their interest to do exactly the opposite. So I think those are weak. And maybe that goes to the second problem we have is that there's no binding worldwide mechanism to ensure compliance with for states in this area. And I think we're a long way away from that for, for a whole variety of reasons, because some countries see themselves as tech neutral, right? They don't want to be in the business of like defining some technology good, some technology bad. They just, they're prepared to kind of deal with other things. Some countries, because they're producers and exporters of these kinds of technologies, there's no interest for them. And even in the space that you've just described, Alan, which is this idea that maybe countries have a, an interest in regulating, let's say, high-risk technologies, right? Risk technologies that might have risk. I mean, the only real framework we have, we have this thing called the OECD NCP framework. It's like a, a framework that OECD countries can use if there's a concern about the misuse uh, by businesses of um, of a particular kind of good or technology or transfer, but those aren't binding. You don't, you know, you you could you can make you can use a process like that, but it doesn't have any coercive power against the state. And then if we look at national level sort of regulation, again, I think it's actually extremely weak in the countries we're talking about. And you know, the reason for that is that there are lots of incentives that run the other way right? They just run the other way. And because there's a lack of consensus among states really on this fundamental question as to whether there's like business liability for the kinds of end uses that happen from these technologies. Like I just, you and I might agree that the end use, certain end uses are just not justified, but it's really not clear that there's a consensus on that across the world. I mean, remember, we're talking about like there's just not a consensus that states should be in the business of holding corporations responsible for harmful conduct or even tortious conduct, particularly if it happens in other countries, right? That it's just, I just think we, we don't have that consensus. And to get to your favorite topic, let's, you know, the export challenges. Well, I just think we have very weak export First of all, they're not global, right? Let's be clear, they're just not global. So particular countries, the United States um, has a framework, the EU has a framework, but the export control restrictions are kind of very ad hoc. So for example, you know, after the Pegasus revelations, the US directly engaged against a number of spyware companies and they added companies uh, like NSO to the sanctions list. Uh, there's a Singaporean company that's on the sanctions list. This might have been a part of your day job some years ago before you retreated to the quiet of academia. But really, 
I mean, what we have are essentially, I think of as selective blacklisting procedures. They're not global. And there's also just, as you know, there's ways around them. And I think of, for example, the Wassenasser arrangement, the EU dual use goods and technologies. I mean, it's not really clear yet that spyware falls into the category of a dual use problem. So definitionally, and even though that's regularly updated, it's actually never updated at the speed of use. And so, and even on a good day, that arrangement, that export control arrangement, it's not legally binding. It's not a treaty. It, the word itself is the giveaway. It's an arrangement for dual use regulation. It's not a it's not a fix, I would say. If there's anything more depressing than guidelines, I think arrangement has to be it. Some, somehow even flabbier. Yeah, it is flabbier. It is. And of course, you know, that's not by accident. States are the generators of binding international legal standards. States get to decide what they call things. They decide if they want to get into a treaty arrangement. They decide if they want to do arrangements. <laughs> So I would say and what the report, I think, does really systematically here is just illustrate that, like, wherever you go, you just don't have anything that really incentivizes. You don't have an effective system of control on the trade of surveillance technology. And you really we're still struggling to get state agreement on that. So I think we've covered the the state of play well. So I think now it's a good time to turn to, well, what do we do next? And and I think, you know, reading your report, reading other scholarship on, on this topic, there, there's sort of two broad buckets that folks think about. There's the, what we might call the, 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 the bandit bucket, and then there's the regulated bucket. So I want to start with the bandit bucket, uh, because it's kind of conceptually the, the, the clearest, right? You just, you just ban it. In Costa Rica, um, uh, it was the, the first nation to uh, officially call for um, a full moratorium on on spyware, and so I, I, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on the the Bannett uh, approach, and also I'm also curious to hear your thoughts specifically on the Costa Rica part of this. I, I'm a big fan of Costa Rica. I hope to visit someday. I hear lovely things. Um, it does obviously Costa Rica is is not what is traditionally thought of as a major global power, and so I, I wonder sort of both why Costa Rica, and also maybe more importantly, if it's countries like Costa Rica that are calling for a moratorium on spyware. Is that a sign that, again, with all respect to Costa Rica, we're not going to get a moratorium on spyware? Yeah. So, I mean, look, I mean, I've been clear in this uh, in this role of mine, which is both a political and a legal role. I give advice to states. I give advice to the council. I'm acutely aware, and the report says this, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has called for a moratorium. We've had the former Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, my friend and colleague David Kay, has called for a, a moratorium. And I, I say very clearly in this report that it may well be that there are aspects of spyware that are simply unregulable, meaning that there are pieces of this, in, if the technology is used in a particular way, that simply defy compliance in a way that's consistent with fundamental rights. So, for example, if states don't or companies don't agree to certain kinds of limitations on use, then the uses in particular way are just fundamentally incompatible with any idea of human dignity or human rights. So I accept that, but I think what really drove 
my team and I, and I should give like a real shout out to my legal advisor, Adriana Erdemus Jones, who's our tech and, 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 and international law specialist. And when we talked through this, we were like, but you know, moratorium, we're not, we're not getting very far on the moratorium discussion. We're just not. And that bar is just so high and the technology is moving so fast that if we just get stuck on that, we're just really not going to enter into what I think and feel are the necessary kind of mid-level discussions with member states. And really, that's why this proposal talks about a kind of a model for regulation, which has certain features that would make this amenable to regulation, some kind of principal agreement about what things could be regulated. And I think that's why, in some ways, the report has had such a positive response from governments, not because they all want to regulate spyware, but at least as a preliminary point. And we've seen this with the recent uh, executive decision by the by the Biden administration, but also in the agreement between France and 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 the UK on talking about regulation, that there is a willingness by members of the P5 in particular, at least three of them, the P3, the P2, I'm sure have a different view, um, Russia and China. But I think there's some kind of, I, I do see this political opening among the P3 and among other states to have a discussion about regulation which goes to the why Costa Rica. So I, I think there's some like interesting things and, and observers who are not, listeners who are not like regular kind of beatniks or like, I don't know, international law nerds, which a, a number of us are. You know, one of the things that's really interesting is that often small countries can move things in ways that big countries can't, right? If you're the U.S., well, first of all, there's a whole load of interagency issues in moving anything, right, in terms of just staking out a position of international law that has implications across multiple parts of the interagency. So sometimes it's just really hard, even if you have an administration that thinks, oh, yeah, we think that's a problem, but how would we get a position that we could then take out into the universe of international law? And so small, small states who don't have those issues and actually are not burdened by use or export are often seen as, I want to say neutral, but they're neutral in the sense that they don't have skin in the game, which means they can be, they can move out faster and more effectively. And, you know, I, I think of particular of Gulag states. So when we say Costa Rica, we also have to remember that Costa Rica is part of the Gulag group. And if you can move some regional groups, you're not really just talking, if you look at the states who signed up to Costa Rica's statement, there's a lot of Grulak states in there. So suddenly you're not talking about just one country, you're talking about actually a large regional group prepared to move on a particular issue. And 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 Grulak, just just to be clear, so this is the group of Latin American and the and the Caribbean. I'll admit I when I, I this is the first time I've heard the phrase and I thought you initially said Gulag states and I thought, wow, this is part of Costa Rican history. I was not aware, but it is the it is the Grulak <laughs> Caribbean Latin American states. Yes, definitely not Grulag states. <laughs> so sorry for the acronyms. But I, I think for observers and lawfare listeners thinking about, well, how do we understand how international law moves? I think it's just a really interesting study and in understanding. It's a little bit like thinking about how things move. Sometimes states move things. It's not the federal government that moves things. It's, it's states that move things. Sometimes you get a coalition of states moving on, let's say, emissions uh, regulation. And that actually then has this 
purposive effect on the way the federal government thinks about something. And actually, it builds momentum around a particular idea or regulatory framework. So the why Costa Rica is, is, I think, interesting as a country. They've taken some very strong views on the regulation of new tech, not just spyware, um, but also because they have this kind of interesting role as a kind of a bundler, I want to say convener, of other states that actually has brings others together. So to get to regulation of spyware, we need some bundlers. We need states who may not have agreement on everything, right? Some of them um, would want like light touch regulation. Some would want a recognition of harm. Some might be prepared to go further. And the kind of momentum for that would be maybe you start off with a soft law thing, like a general assembly resolution Maybe you get a group of states who are prepared to really start talking about a treaty. It's not going to happen like in a day. Uh, of course, it's not. But but I also think there's a deeper appreciation of harm right now more than there's. And, you know, when I teach this, and I'm sure you have this too, when you put up your phone and you say to people, actually, how would you feel if your phone was the entry point to giving government information about everything in your life. And I don't think you have to be left or right to actually be profoundly concerned about the implications. You want all the benefits of technology, but I think as human beings, we also want to feel like we have some rights that fly past technology and that we, our private lives, and it's not just in a counterterrorism space, a security space, but in divorce proceedings, in, you know, in issues, fundamental issues of privacy, that your phone can't be weaponized against you. I think most people would want that assurance, you know. So since we're putting the kind of the moratorium kind of bracketing that, um, because that's you know probably not going to happen anytime soon. What, in your view, and obviously the the report goes into much much greater depth, but just sort of at a kind of a general level, what to you are the necessary features of the sort of regulatory system you'd like to see? And I'm curious, in particular, both the substance, right, like what would it actually regulate and how would it regulate, but also at yeah. what level? I mean, are you thinking of a treaty that is then implemented? Are you thinking of soft law that is then implemented? Are you thinking of just more of a, a convening? So, I'm both on substance and kind of process. What are the sort of top things that you would recommend most going forward? I mean, I'm a lawyer who likes treaties because like... <laughs> so certainly I mean, more than arrangements and guidelines. Yeah, like I just, I'm all for, you know, but I really, but I'm also a great believer. And I think, of course, we're speaking primarily to a U.S. audience that hasn't always been as great a proponent of the multilateral system or treaties. But like, particularly when we talk about global globalized issues, issues where the U.S. has a compelling interest, not just for itself, but ensuring that others are not misusing technologies that will ultimately be used against the United States and its partners. That's where our, I think, rational self-interest lies in the United States to think about global regulation, which sometimes requires kinds of compromises that are not perfect, but provide some guarantees and protections for a whole range of interests, but include and including national security interests of the United States. So I, in the long run, I'd like a treaty. 
And I think treaties are important because they buy in all states at a level playing field and everyone and they're hard. You're bound by a treaty. States, I mean, the Senate, you know, consent and ratification process is hard because actually we take the U.S. has always taken treaty ratification seriously. And that's why I think in some ways that's the gold standard, even though it's really hard to get to. So in that way, like I, I haven't written a draft treaty, but I've said if we were going to regulate spyware, and I really started with this, I think we have to have these features that uh, that would make spyware regulatable, right? Meaning that you can't use this kind of technology if it's automatically going to access data to, that relates to all of the, in, the information about every individual who is targeted. So let's say there's a legitimate reason to target me, right? Someone suspects I've been up to no good and there's a good law enforcement reason to have access to my phone, right? And we could all agree that there are good law enforcement reasons to have access to somebody's phone. But that shouldn't mean, I think, I think we might all reasonable adults agree that you should have, the state should have access to everybody that I have ever been in touch with ever. Because the level of information, the sort of degree of information beyond the targeted individual, unless it's specific, unless you can specifically make a case for other individuals, that we shouldn't allow that kind of mass targeting through an individual. I think I'm very Kantian about not using people as means to ends, that I think we have to think about that both philosophically, but also just in terms of the implications for not just privacy, but the kind of right to have rights in that space. The second thing I would say is that I think the goal really would be to allow for the targeting of certain data and metadata rather than everything. That's that's really the key, that there has to be any system of regulation has to start on the premise of specificity rather than generality. The third and it's the one we've talked about is these kill switches um, where there's misuse. You have to be able to figure out as a law, as a matter of the rule of law, if there's been misuse of spyware, if it's if it's authorized for use. So technology that doesn't allow you to figure that out, to me, is technology that shouldn't be acceptable. Because then like we 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 lose law, we we lose oversight if we can't figure out if there's been misuse. I mean the fourth feature is I think that any use of spyware, this kind of surveillance, has to create what I call an indelible, permanent, and uneditable uh, record of what actions have been taken by the user of the spyware. And that includes any, it, it has to include modifications or interference with a person's data. And I think that on editable record is actually critical to making sure that you have a record of what's been done. And like, to me, that's just a a feature of the rule of law. If the government has the right to intrude, you have to know what the intrusion is. You have to have the capacity to know what the intrusion is. And then you would apply a proportionality, lawfulness, necessity test. But like, if you if we live in a universe where you just don't know, then we're in a universe of non-law. And I, I just... I don't think any of us want to be in that universe, whether it's on spyware or any other technology. And it, it really does seem to me that a, a regulatory mechanism that requires those four features as a minimum is a place to start. And if you have spyware that doesn't have those features, 
I mean, I just think it's non-rule of law compliant. So, I mean, the danger is, Alan, of course, that we're going to have further development of these surveillance technologies that literally render them incapable of being regulated. And that makes me nervous, you know. I want to finish up by asking you what your sense is about the near or short-term likelihood of an adoption of this sort of of regulation. And and let's just use the U.S. as an example, because, you know, you you have a situation, and I suspect similar dynamics would apply to democracies in Europe and Asia. You have thriving tech sectors that are producing a lot of this stuff, but you also have strong concerns, and you have governments that internally might be somewhat divided on this. So obviously, President Biden, I think, cares in principle on these issues, or at least his administration sort of is in principle, cares about these issues. But at the same time, and this was reported by the the Times earlier in April, that just as the Biden administration was taking action against NSO Group, who, who manufactures Pegasus, parts of the government were trying to acquire the tool from the NSO Group through various shell and front companies, because it's a great tool if you're uh, you know, in the, uh, if you're a three-letter agency or you're a DOD or whatever, right? And, and, and so, um, you know, there's a real left-hand, right-hand kind of situation here. And I'm, I suspect very similar things are happening in Europe and, and all sorts of stuff like that. So uh, w- what is your sense about um, whether or not uh, the, the kind of important liberal democracies will take up your invitation to do some regulation here? I mean, no one ever embraces regulation because they don't have to, is my view. Often you have to create different kinds of both negative and positive incentives. So the negative incentives right now, there's, I mean, I think we're in the universe of expose around misuse. And I just expect more of that. Like I just, I think, you know, whether it's investigative journalists, whether it's Citizen Lab in Toronto, whether it's Amnesty International, whether it's the lawyers representing women whose bones, you know, in divorce. I mean, there's just, I think we've hit, so there's a kind of a, an opening dam effect that has all of these other consequences for governments in terms of negative publicity. But negative publicity alone has never moved regulation in my view either, right? So the other piece that we're seeing is we're seeing litigation. So, I mean, I'm particularly watching what's happening in the European courts, in the British courts around, and we've already had, had. I mean, how do we know about the use of Pegasus in the context of the UAE's princesses' divorces because it was litigated in British courts? And there's a set of particularly European courts developing very robust jurisprudence. So sometimes, of course, as we know, governments may not want to regulate, but they'd rather regulate than have the courts set the terms upon which they will have to uh, address these misuses. So I do think that's a particularly significant press at this point. But the other press, I think, it's it's a sort of a really realist view of where much of this is coming from. We see countries like China, UAE, others. We see a number of countries where their development of these kinds of technologies poses strategic security threats to the to the United States, to Western states, to others, to democracies, I would say. And in that context, there are a different set of calibrated security goods that are in balance with one another. And I would say, I see at least in, again, it's not, it's, it, 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 I don't know where this lands, but I think certainly if you read the national security strategy of the United States, you can see where some of that 
sits in terms of strategic thinking about what kinds of threats are emanating from where and how they how they outwork in a national security context and technology is at the heart of that so i think to me that seems to say that while there hasn't been a huge appetite for regulation we're moving into a what i see as a sensitization to the need for regulation and so i don't think it's going to be fast but i i remain somewhat optimistic given what we're seeing from this move led by Costa Rica, but also what we're seeing on, in the EU, the European Union's clearly, the European Commission is looking at this seriously. If we have an EU directive on this surveillance technology, that's a game changer. It's a game changer, just as it has been on so much of the, the, the collection of metadata and security cooperation and other things. So I, I remain cautiously optimistic in the medium term that we will get some regulation on the use of spyware. I think that's a good place to leave the conversation. Fanula Neolan, thank you so much for joining. And it's a fabulous report, super interesting. And I highly recommend those listeners who are interested in it to, to take a look and we'll, we'll link to it. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.